Hello, you lovely lot. I wanted to take a moment to share an exciting announcement with you all. I will be doing a live show for Happy Mum, Happy Baby at the podcast show in London on the 22nd of May. This will be a live episode of this very podcast featuring me and a very special soon-to-be-announced guest. Get ready for a candid conversation, unfiltered truths, laughs, invaluable non-judgmental advice and lived experiences. Dive into the complexities of parenting while juggling work, relationships and personal growth and we'll be talking beyond the baby years. As well as the live episode, the show will also include a Q&A with both me and my guest. Tickets go on sale this Friday the 26th of April at 10am, but anyone who is part of the Happy Mum, Happy Baby newsletter will be getting early access to tickets on Wednesday the 24th of April at 10am. To sign up to the newsletter and for more information about the event, please head to happymumhappybaby.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new episode of Happy Mum, Happy Baby, the podcast. Today's guest is someone that I met years ago uh, through a breast cancer awareness campaign. Since then, I went on a trek with her to the Himalayas. She is the host of the Intended Parent podcast, which is fascinating and amazing. You should go and listen to it. It's won an award. It's brilliant. And she is also the mum of four children under two, two and under. <laughs> Today's guest is Karina Demon. Hi. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I mean, I cut out a whole big chunk of, of you there because there's just so much to cover. You know, when you're That's just... Right. I started writing notes about you and then obviously you find things yeah. that you've blogged, you find things that you've said on the podcast, you find things that we have spoken about before. Because I can remember being on a plane to Delhi and us having a chat, yeah. standing up, because we all were standing up uh, for some reason, there were so many of us. By the toilets. By the toilets. <laughs> and us talking about <laughs> having a child after breast cancer and you really wanting to talk about 
that experience and how there is still that hope. You know, there are loads of different avenues that you can go down. Mm. And at mm. that point, you had one child. Last I year, did. triplets came into your life. Oh, my gosh. What are the chances of that happening? <laughs> like... I can't, I, I can't even put it into words. I can't articulate it because it's just so far fetched that it would have happened. It's just <laughs> bonkers, absolutely bonkers. The fact that you're here on time as well for this chat, I was ready for you to be because <laughs> I've kept saying the whole way along. You know, if anything happens, you know, don't worry. We yep. can reschedule. We can push it back. And then you text me saying I might be a couple of minutes late. <laughs> a couple. Usually people don't even bother messaging for a couple of minutes late, and you were on time. I know it's amazing. I bet I have to say thanks to my mother-in-law. She is on uh, triplet duty. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Did you have a big family? Yeah, I said I grew up in um, not not. I, I was I was from Hawley, which is like five miles down the road from Crawley. So I haven't gone very far. Yeah, but yeah, it, it was me, my mum, my dad, and my sister. But it was always about extended families for us. So you know we're Indian, so. Cousins are pretty much your siblings and, you know, all the holidays are spent with your cousins and so massive families. And, and now I think, like, one of my aunts who I'm really close to, every Christmas and every summer holidays, we would pack a massive suitcase, like, <laughs> massive, and just descend at her house, like, for eight weeks, me and my sister, and she has two kids of her own. And now I'm like, if someone sent their kids to my house for eight weeks, I'd be like, what? What the hell? Yes, but are you ready to send all four of yours to your sister's house? Oh, yeah. Because that's the really yeah, important yeah. thing here, Karina. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, re I'm ready, mate. I, I, I'm already planning to send them to my mother-in-law who lives down the road. Like, I'm like, are you ready to have them all for the weekend yet? Are you ready yet? <laughs> <laughs> did you always think that you would have a big family? Like, lots of, did you see yourself with lots of kids around you? Yeah, I did. I did. Before my diagnosis, I definitely always saw myself as like having a big family. And my husband and I would, before we were married, would be like, oh, we want to have kids like relatively early on. We want lots of them. And it was really crazy because we went traveling in 2011 or 12 and we were on holiday. And at the end of our holiday, we had this like luxury hotel in Fiji booked just to, to, to celebrate not having to skank it anymore. <laughs> And we basically were at the pool and there was this family of, at the time, there was four boys. So there was mum, dad and four sons. And they were having the time of their lives. And it was almost like, you know, you, you just know they don't need, the, the kids didn't need any other friends because they had each other and it was so beautiful. And we ended up becoming their friends because um, the dad was, uh, I think he was from Sri Lanka, so he was fairly dark-skinned. And the mum was just Canadian um, and fair-skinned. So their kids were exactly the same skin tone as mine. And, uh, and like, they just, they were really drawn to us and we were drawn to them. So we were hanging out. And at the end of that trip, me and Sati were like, wouldn't it be amazing to have a family that size? Like, it would be brilliant. And we left it at that. We lost contact. I had my breast cancer diagnosis. Obviously, no children before then. And then uh, Marla came along. And just as she came along, uh, Fiona, who was the mum, she and her husband found us on Facebook. And they're like, oh, my God, guys, we've been looking for you for ages, but we couldn't spell your surname, blah, blah, blah. And then we reconnected. And we were like, how are the kids, blah, blah, blah. And we told her about Marla. And they were like, oh, my God, that's amazing. You need to have more. And we were like, oh, it's quite difficult. You know, this is yeah. the situation. And then, bizarrely, in 2016, when I had my heart failure incident, we were in Vancouver visiting them. And oh, really? So yeah, it was like, a, we haven't seen each other for five, six years, let's meet up. So we went to Vancouver, we stayed at their house, and actually I fell poorly from their house. 
and then their kids were just amazing and they were like oh and they, they're literally just like a family even though we've only met two or three times they felt like our family and every time we met them we're like it wouldn't be wouldn't it be brilliant to have a family this big and I reckon we manifested that yeah. because we kept saying how wonderful this family were and then like overnight <laughs> we became like a family of six from three which I'll take that. I mean, they're, they're now a family of seven because they've got a little girl as well. Wow. But, but I'll take six. Yeah. I'll take six. I don't think I, don't think I want any more. <laughs> not sure I can cope. So when you were travelling, at that point, did you ever have in your head when you would like to start trying for a family? Yeah, I think it was always going to be sort of... We were due back from our travels and we would have been married for a year and a half and then we were like, let's get jobs because we'd quit our jobs. So we're like, we'll get our jobs, settle in for a year and then it's it's definitely on to sort of making babies. So we were just on that sort of train of, well, let's get all of what the tick boxes that we have to tick ticked and then we will start this family. And we were pretty late to get married as Indian as an Indian couple. I was 30, Sati was 31. And then not having children in sort of getting to 32, 33, it was late for an Indian family to not have any children. So people were constantly asking us as well. Mm. And at that time, it didn't bother me that much because there wasn't a reason for me not having children other than I was just logistically getting my life in order. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, along comes 33, 34 and a breast cancer diagnosis that literally turned our world upside down in so many different ways. And you can't control that, can you? You just can't control what happens after that. And it was difficult, really, really difficult. I've got to say, actually, for anyone listening, the first episode of the Intended Parent podcast, you talk in depth about your cancer diagnosis and all of the treatment that follows that. And and I've got to say Mm. for people to go and listen to that because there's so much to talk about and I feel like we could really go down that route and I would be absolutely fascinated. But (laughs) but it's it's so hard because I just, you know, and we both hammer home that message of it's not just a lump that you're looking for. There are so many other signs and symptoms and to get to know your body. And I know that a huge part of what you do in sharing is to get rid of stigma, especially in the South Asian community, where to talk about breast cancer, to talk about surrogacy, uh, egg donor, you know, all of those things. Um, So let's stick with the babies. (laughs) Stick with babies. Stick with babies. Forever, otherwise. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but but that's the thing. That's why I want people to go and listen to the other podcasts because I think it explains so much and it says so much. Um, Mm. As part of your uh, your breast cancer diagnosis, at any point in that before IVF was because they offered you IVF so that you could freeze your embryos. At what point did you start thinking what about a family? It was really complicated because. Once you're on the route of getting tested for breast cancer, you get to a point where you're like, you know, that's what's going to come. You don't have to wait for the doctor to tell you because you've been tested so much. So it kind of started coming into the fore quite early on. I was Googling things. I was starting to look at forums and I thought there's a lot of people talking about whether or not they can have babies. And and I need to consider that. And that's actually when it came to the IVF, it was because I had to ask for it because I was so worried that I wouldn't be able to have a baby after my treatment. So the difficult part was actually going through that IVF process, knowing that you've got chemotherapy hanging over you. Mm. Um, Because we say it quite often, even on the podcast, that IVF in itself is a huge deal. Like, you don't just wake up one day and decide to go into a fertility clinic. You know, it takes a lot of work from yourself and your partner. And and we didn't get the opportunity to do that because we got told, you know, you've got cancer. And then I was told I had 14 days to collect these eggs and if it didn't work it didn't work and we'd have to just leave it at that so at that time that was really difficult it must have been difficult as well weighing that up you know knowing 
that hormones would affect your Absolutely. cancer as well yeah. what those extra weeks would mean and would do yeah, yeah. So I was fortunate that my treatment involved removing the tumour before chemotherapy. So my oncologist, I mean, I think if you listen to the podcast, I probably said it that the line from him was that I'm here to save your life, not to create a new life. Right. And he was quite crude with that. Um, but I had to have something that gave me hope. Mm. Um, and this was it. And, and he said, you know, we do have it will be risky because you have a hormonally sensitive cancer. But there are ways we can suppress it. So at that time, my husband and I had to make a risk-based decision. And once you get to know me, my cup is generally half full. And so I was like, it will give us more hope than it does cause harm. But that was at that point in time. Yeah. And as I got closer to chemo, and as this sort of IVF process began, and I got towards the end of it, and our embryos were created, I remember getting a call from the embryologist who was like, over the moon, she was like, Karina, I'm so happy for you. We've harvested 13 or 12 or whatever is embryos. It's a brilliant result. You know, go into chemo knowing that you've done everything you can. And I just sort of hung up without saying anything to her. And I, I, I cried because I just thought, have I created these babies, or these maybe babies, and I'm not going to ever live to see them? And that really became something that started to sort of hang over my head as I went through my early part of my breast cancer treatment because I'd gone into a really dark, cold and lonely place where, you know, the closer chemo got, the more fearful I got of cancer. The, and then as the side effects took hold and I lost my physical self, I lost sort of my spirit as well. And all I thought was, well, I've just made these babies and I'm never, ever going to live to see them grow into human beings because cancer is going to kill me. So that was really difficult and and I think I didn't have I didn't have a connection to my embryos at that time. They were sort of created because they had to be created. Sort of a means to an end. Yeah. And it, you knew that for you to be able to carry those embryos, that you would have to be off of your treatment for ten years. I knew I had to be on treatment for ten years. So I knew that if I wanted to carry a pregnancy, I'd have to break treatment. Right. Um, and I, I began to speak to my oncologist about that a couple of years after my treatment. And I kept saying to him, am I ready yet? Am I ready yet to come off? And he would just say, look, Karina, these are the stats and these are the recurrence rate. I, I cannot tell you whether you should or shouldn't come off, but I will give you the data. And it was really heavily weighed against me. You know, the risk of recurrence for me was close to 70% in the first three to five years based on the stats that he was showing me. And I just, I would then sort of think to myself, if I, if I chose to become pregnant, because that's my personal desire, and then my cancer came back, A, is that fair on a child? How will that make me feel towards that child? Just all these questions, you know, and and I say that with a caveat that I think it's very personal because I don't think everyone has that issue. And, I, you know, and I know a lot of people who've come off medication to have children and, you know, carry a healthy pregnancy and they're fine. But for me, I was so fear based at that time that I just couldn't do it. And so I thought, well, rather than consume myself with fear, I have to look at other options. And that's when I started to look into surrogacy and I started to look into it really seriously because I wasn't the person who could come off her medication because I was so my head was was sort of in the place that this medication is keeping me alive so mm. i cannot come off it so i looked into surrogacy how long after your diagnosis did you start looking into it because i imagine it's quite a lengthy process in itself yeah i think i probably tipped my toes in sort of within the first year whilst i was having treatment i was sort of just, just sort of 
joining forums and googling it and just researching it because like like I've said so many times I didn't know anyone who'd become a parent through surrogacy I didn't even know other than Tina Metcalf on Coronation Street who carried a baby for Carrie and Izzy I didn't have a clue you know and and so I was like well I need to just research this and figure out what my options are and people would start talking to me so you know some people were like go to India it's you know it's cheap it's easy you know blah 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 and and then other people would be like, oh, no, just adopt. And it's just all of these opinions in your and you're just like, I just need to form my own opinion at this point in time. I can't I can't have other people's opinions muddy this because it's so important to me. And really early on, I dismissed overseas and I dismissed India. Um, it, it's now not legal anyway, but at the time it was uh, legal for international surrogacy in India. But I dismissed that because I, I had this yearning to be as close as I could to whoever was carrying my baby. And I knew if I did it overseas, I wouldn't get that. Like, I wanted to be there for every scan. I wanted to be able to feel a baby kick. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be as close to me carrying a pregnancy as I could. So it had to be here in England. And and then, you know, I looked at agencies. I, very, I Actually, I had a check written out for an agency. I was going to sign up. And then this lady on a Facebook forum messaged me and she just said, before you post that check, I just want to let you know I've met my surrogate on Facebook through private chat rooms on Facebook. I know it sounds scary and freaky, yeah. but 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 honestly, give it a go because you've got nothing to lose. And at that time, I was like, why would I meet someone on like social media, Facebook? That sounds really far-fetched. But I think it wasn't as difficult for me because I had also, through my cancer journey, found a secret Facebook groups for breast cancer. That's true, and yeah. So I just did that. And the more I got into these pages and the more I committed to them, the more I felt at home in them. And like, it's not it's not like it just happened. It took a long time to find my match in Ina, my first surrogate. Before her, I'd had, you know, I'd met someone we, we'd met quite a few times and then they just out, disappeared out of the blue, which is really heartbreaking. Because no. you're just like, what did I do wrong? Yeah, and, and, and you know, it's a change in circumstance, but they didn't feel they could tell us, so, so they just sort of disappeared. And then equally, there's been other people who've thought, you know, I'm a great match. And the more I've got to know them, I'm like, oh, I don't think I can. I don't think this is going to work. So I imagine that has to be ways. a great deal of, like, comfort in each other as well. Yeah. You have to be comfortable around each other. Every topic has to be up for grabs. Absolutely everything. We say on our pod as well that when it comes to a surrogacy pregnancy, you talk to your surrogate about things a regular couple don't talk to each other about before they try for a baby. Right. Um, So when you match with your surrogate, you go through sort of an agreement. It's it's not legally binding, but it's kind of your expectations off each other and, and you stand by it. And you talk about what you'll do if a surrogate miscarries at a set number of weeks, or you talk about what you're going to do if it's shown that your child has... Down syndrome or any other abnormalities you have to talk about everything you have to talk about terminations and what are the grounds on a termination you don't talk about that before you sort of happily go into Mm. naturally baby making that's not a conversation regularly people have but you have to do it in a surrogacy arrangement so you have to be comfortable with that person and and I think for many people who come to surrogacy from an independent perspective like I did it's not just about your surrogate it's about her family her support network your family, your support, everyone getting on with each other because pregnancy isn't a one-man band, is it? Mm. You you know, so I know when I met Ina, I I absolutely loved her. Like, I thought she was incredible. But then we met her partner and she brought her little boy into it as well. And um, we walked away and Satya and I said, you know, she's incredible. And then he goes, 
he's even more incredible. He doesn't need her to be pregnant, does he? He's perfectly happy, but he's supporting her through it. And that is incredible. And it's a huge role. It's not just like she'll be pregnant and nothing will change in their lives. No, no. Yeah, loads, you know, loads of things change in their lives. Were you the um, first people that she was surrogate for? Yeah. yeah, we were, we were. She At the time, she was talking to another couple and um, she basically messaged me to say, look, we want to match with you. And then later she said, you know, there was someone else, but Ivar's liked you more. Oh. And so he told me I, sh- I should match with you. And I'm like, I knew I liked him. <laughs> I knew I liked him from the beginning. <laughs> so good that you picked up those good vibes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) it's so many people coming together to create these lives. Absolutely. Like I just, I've never met a family like mine. (laughs) I've never met an Indian family like mine. And I just think there's got to be more of us out there. or There's got to be people who need to hear this story so that they can be inspired to create their dream. Mm -hmm. Or know that, you know, if they're going through cancer treatment or whatever they're going through that is in the way of, them going down the traditional path, if you like, that there are other avenues and other yeah, ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then when you did decide to go ahead with Ina, then what happens? So we took a very long time because we were both first timers, Ina and I. So we basically, we met that first time and then it feels to me like it's generally the women who talk. Because generally women talk more than blokes anyway. Like Sati and Evas, they just needed like a whiskey between them and they were they were all right. Like me and Ina would be nattering away. So we would, Ina and I would WhatsApp loads and then we would chat loads and we would just tell each other what we're doing. And we, we genuinely became friends. Like there, there was a friendship there long before there was a baby there. Yeah. And it took us, well, it was almost 12 months to the day, I think, of us beginning to sort of, seriously talk to each other to embryo transfer with her so we took we took a year we didn't really know anything about IVF yeah we didn't understand how it worked we didn't have a clinic I had embryos in a hospital that didn't have a surrogacy license so I had to move them like I never knew any of this stuff it was sort of like learning on the job so I took my time took my time with Ina and we both leaned very heavily on friends in the surrogacy community and and eventually got to the point at which we you know we transferred the embryo into her and were you all Um, there that day no we weren't it was just me so Sati was working and Ina and I went to the clinic her partner and her son were with her and uh, we'd been in and we'd seen the embryologist and they said, look, Queenie, you've got, you know, five or six really good embryos, but this one is, is this is the one. <laughs> and we were like, OK, can't, right, this is the one. Right? <laughs> and um, she said, this is the one we're going to transfer. And I, I saw the doctor and he goes, look, there's no need to transfer more than one. You've got such a good quality one. We're going to use that. And we just did it. And then we went and had a drink. Um, well, Ina didn't have a drink. <laughs> we were, you know, we did, we did this transfer. And actually, another thing that I wasn't really aware of was we, Ina and I didn't really talk about where our boundaries were. So they said to me, do you want to come and see the transfer? And at that point, I thought, oh, that's a bit personal. I mean, I didn't think of the point at which she's going to give birth to my kid and that's all right. So I didn't want to go into the room to sort of invade her privacy when they were transferring this embryo in so I sort of waited in the hallway and I was just like walking up and down her partner was like walking up and down we're like why is it taking so long and then she came out and she was like oh it was amazing I wish you were in there you could see the embryo on the screen and you could see them put it in and I was just like I can't believe I said no (laughs) can't believe I said no um it was just crazy to then think you know She's going home and, and she might just have this little baby. Well, what was that weight like oh. before she took her first pregnancy test? 
oh my god it was horrendous so but we knew it was going to be bad like we knew it was going to be difficult so Sati and I had booked a three-day break to Brussels because we were like we're just gonna get on the Eurostar do something to distract us to, to sort of take three or four days out of this process so we were we sort of we saw Rena home and then we got on the Eurostar and went on a, on a little city break uh, we, we sort of we went off and then I came back and we heard the, like this devastating news that we didn't have any embryos left after that and all that we had was inside Ina's womb. What had happened so to the other from, embryos? The clinic say they were substandard. The, the agreement was that whatever happened to those embryos, A, I get a phone call, and B, they get refrozen because we knew I couldn't collect again, so yeah. everything we had was sort of that round. Um, we didn't get a call, and then we were later told that they were allowed to perish, so they should have been refrozen at day five, but they were taken to day six and perished. Um and that was really hard to hear. I came home and I said that to Ina. I said, there's nothing left. And I, when, when I was told that I didn't have anything left, I, I really mourned those embryos. Yeah. Like, really, really, really mourned. I found it heartbreaking. We didn't know if it had worked with Ina. I'd lost the last chance of motherhood that I could have if I could have gone again. And it was soul-destroying. Like, I remember I fell to the floor in my hallway and just cried, just cried so much. And and Sati came back and he said, it's OK, don't worry, it'll be fine. And I remember shouting at him, I was like, it's fine for you, you could do it again, you could have biological children if you want. I can't because this is my body, it's broke. You know, and I I think it was like loads of anger that I didn't realise was there until that point in time about how I couldn't do this again and how I couldn't carry this pregnancy, how I couldn't create more embryos and you know it was all of this stuff that had been taken away from me that I hadn't really dealt with until the point at which I've been told that my backup plan that I thought I had has just gone yeah just vanished and then I called Ina and I told her and she was gutted and I think then the pressure for her was immense yeah the only chance I had at having a biological child of my own was inside her womb and she just she was like, I hope this works, I hope this works, I, you know, I really hope this works. And Ina was incredible. She just kept checking in on me and she was like, yeah, we're going to be fine, we're going to be fine. And we'd had this agreement that we would not home pregnancy tests. Oh, we would really? Just wait for, yeah, we said we would just wait for 10 days, go back to the clinic and get the blood tests done so that there's no false alarms, there's no, you know, maybes. When we would find out at the same time, so we said, let's find out together, like me and you together. We don't want to, we, you know, let's not do home tests. Yeah. So we, we had this agreement. But, you know, I guess every <laughs> pregnant woman wants to pee on a stick, right? <laughs> yes. It became a hobby of mine, Karina, to be honest, just peeing on sticks. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think once we picked ourselves up from this embryo thing, she was like, I need to give her some good news. So she was probably peeing on sticks like crazy. And... She would just send me pictures on WhatsApp. And she'd be like, I'm in the bathroom. And I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes, I feel pregnant. And I'm like, don't tell me, don't tell Aww. me. And then she would sort of send me pictures. And I basically had turned off that automatic download on WhatsApp yeah. after a while. Because I was like, I do not want to open a picture of a pregnancy. I like, literally don't want to know. And then she sent me one and I was like, oh, I'm just going to flip and look because if it was negative, she wouldn't be sending me pictures, yeah. would she? So I opened one and there were two lines and I was like, oh, is this what a pregnancy... <laughs> st- is this what it looks like? Like, 
And then I was like, don't send me anymore. Don't send me anymore. I, don't, I just, 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 I've got an idea of what's going on. Don't send me anymore. And then we were in Wix one day, me and Sati, we were buying some DIY bits. And uh, she video calls me. She goes, look at the, look at the video I've just sent you. And I was like, I'm in the, <laughs> literally in a DIY shop. And she goes, watch the video. So I was like, okay, fine. So I hung up the phone. I opened this picture video thing and Sati's looking at me and he's like, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> And I was like, I can't not do it now. And basically, it was a clear blue test. And it had, you know, the, she'd recorded it, say, pregnant. Yeah. And I was like in wit. Like, oh, my <laughs> God, I'm having a baby. <laughs> you know, unless you're going to be a mum through surrogacy, you're never going to find out in wit. Um, <laughs> what was Sati's reaction at that point? Did he allow himself to kind of go there at that point? No. No, no. I think not until that moment that we had, you know, the, the pregnancy bloods confirmed that we were having a baby. Did he want to allow himself to believe that it could happen? Because... I, I guess so much had happened before that point, you know. Like, and he we, we're, spent we're, years thinking that he was going to lose you, you know. So yeah, to have you still and then to be having a child, yeah, like, that's emotion overload right there. <laughs> it is, it is, and it's mad. It, 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 but, 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 you know, the pregnancy continued and... What was oh, that like was from your amazing. point of view? You know, going through that pregnancy, how were you at all the appointments? Were you meeting up? Was she telling you every time anything <laughs> happened? You know, how how, yeah. how did it work? She was incredible. So she would tell me how she was feeling. She would tell me if she had cravings. She would send me videos as her bump grew. And like, oh, my God, one of the most beautiful things that she did was on Mother's Day 2018, just before Amala was born, she just it was just a regular Mother's Day. I was just going to go and see my mum. And I didn't really think about the fact that I was going to be a mum because it sounds weird, but because you haven't got a bump, you're not constantly in that frame of I'm about to be a mum. Yeah. There are times where it just sort of slips you. You know, you just get on with your regular life. And so I was just going to go to my mum's house. And then I woke up and she'd sent me this picture and she'd had her daughter paint a baby bump. Like her bump was painted and then it just had Hello Mummy written Aww. on it. Oh my gosh, she made me cry. Like literally, that was just one of the most beautiful things she did. But uh, you know, other than that, like she she was sending me videos of the baby kicking. We were there for every single scan. Um, we had some private scans done, which was really lovely to get sort of like the four D imaging and stuff. So we were really, really close to Ina for, for through our pregnancy. Yeah, really close. And what was it like when everything started? When she went into labour? Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. So. We'd always had a plan, you know, like a birth plan, and that and that was that Sati and I were allowed to be in the room with her, and that was okay with the hospital. They were quite familiar with surrogacy pregnancies, so the plan was that we'd all go in together. She'd had a slight complication the week before we'd been in for a last midwife appointment, and and actually showed that Amala um, was dry, so Ina had lost a lot of fluid. And then she was told that she would need to be induced right. because Amala was dry. And we were so close to due date that it was not a problem. And then labour was clearly a lot more difficult than any of us imagined. And she ended up needing an epidural, which she always said she wasn't going to have, but but she needed yeah. it. And asked that Satya and I didn't come in the room. So Satya and I were outside, like, going, oh, my God, why has she changed her mind? Like, is she OK? Da-da-da-da. And I kept texting her partner, going, is there anything I can do? Like, you know, I can't. I can't take away any of this pain or I can't 
I can't do anything physically, but can I do anything to help you? Can I get you food? Can I get you a drink? Can I get go home and get you anything? And he was like, we're fine. You know, she's just, she just needs some time. So we were just pacing up and down outside for sort of four hours. And then eventually they let us in. Um, Ina said, you know, that's fine. They can come in now. You know, things have calmed down. So we went into the room and I just saw her and it was the most surreal thing in this world, seeing another woman about to give birth to your child. And as her sort of labour progressed, she, she had sort of an, an issue came with her epidural, her epidural line came out. So she went from being like pretty comfortable to full on contractions and ready for the baby to come. And I was just standing there looking at her. Sati at this point stepped outside because it was just a bit too intense for him to be in there as well. She was, you know, really, really unwell yeah. like you know she was being sick and you know so uncomfortable and I just sat there thinking I did this to you oh. you know and I just felt so helpless in that moment that I couldn't comfort her because I wasn't the person she wanted at that time I couldn't do anything to help her yet she was doing this for me you just go on such a sort of a roller coaster when it comes to everything I'd been through to that point, if, you know, at times I feel like I'm superwoman, but then at other times I feel like I'm like the biggest failure. And I think when watching Ina trying, you know, trying to get Amala out, I felt like I'd failed so many people in so many ways. It was just horrible. And then we went into theatre and, and I think things turned around at that point because we were then in the hands of this amazing team. They'd calmed us all down. They said, look, she's going to be fine. You're going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Let's just get this baby out, you know. So the four of us were together. So Ina was on the bed. Eva's was one side of her. I was the other side and Sati was with us. So I was in the middle of Sati and Eva's. Full on contractions. They, they delivered Amala by four steps in the end. They held her up and the four of us were together. Oh. And it is probably the best moment of my life. Like, <laughs> the whole team, who the whole team who brought her to life were there when she was born and it was just perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And then Ina was sort of kept in theatre and, and fixed up and we were sent to the recovery room. Amala was placed straight on my chest. So I had the first skin to skin with her. And then Sati had skin to skin with her after that. And then we made sure she went to Ina after that. Um, what was it like holding it just, her for the first oh, time? I just don't think I believed she was mine, you know. I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. That night we all had to stay in because Ina had sort of had her epidural, so she had to be in for 24 hours. Amala needed to be up in for 48 hours for various reasons. So we were all in hospital together. And actually it was beautiful to have those, like, you know, next 24 hours with all of us together and... Ina was in a side in a in a side room. Amala and I were on the ward, and actually later that evening we ordered Domino's. Sati brought out a bottle of champagne, and we sat in Ina's room, and we just sort of had a little celebration and a party. And Amala was just asleep in her cot, and it was it was brilliant. You know, it was. There's a lot of things that we have done that are so memorable that you wouldn't do if you did carry a pregnancy. So I kind of just come back to that and just think, you know, we've had so many beautiful beautiful memories and made so many relationships that we wouldn't have made if 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 cancer didn't come my way and yeah. if, you know if heart failure didn't come my way none if none of that happened I wouldn't be here today you know the mum to my four children in the way that I am so you know I have gratitude for it <laughs>
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, how old was Amala when you decided you wanted to extend and you wanted to look into growing your family? She was quite young. She was young. And I think it's that thing of coming from a family that's quite a big family and got, you know, we've got all our cousins and stuff. We always knew that we wanted more than one child. And I think from the minute our embryos were gone, I started thinking, if I did want another child, what would I do? And I started allowing myself to research donation. And I initially started looking actually at traditional surrogacy, where a surrogate uses her own egg to get pregnant. And I started looking at that. But then at that time, Ina was like, if you want a sibling, I'm going to carry it for you. So quite quickly after Amala was born as a team we decided we'd go again like when the time was right and so Ina never wanted to do traditional surrogacy so I knew then that I'd have to find a donor so I started looking into donors and I was telling her you know I'm looking into this that and the other and then she was like okay I'm ready whenever you're ready she goes just my only thing is I want to do it before I'm 40 so I was like okay that's fine because you know that would be about a two and a half year age gap and that's fine that's kind of what we would have wanted anyway so I said to her, I'm going to go down this route of known egg donation because I've researched it a lot. And given that I won't be carrying the pregnancy and I won't be the biological mother of this child, I want to have an involvement of some sort that's more than just sort of a bio on a piece of paper. And I'd sort of spoken to some people who'd gone into known egg. Known egg so is that when you meet tried. Who, who the donors come from? Yeah. Right. So I went over to... eventually ended up in Cyprus so I found basically it's a really long story but I found out a clinic in Cyprus who facilitated known egg donation and I said to them this is what I'd like to do 
you know, this is what I look like. I would love a donor who looks similar to me because at that time as well, I was thinking, oh, I don't want people to always ask me why, you know, if I'd gone with traditional surrogacy and the surrogate mother was a white woman and my children ended up being really fair skinned, I didn't want to spend my whole life explaining why one of my kids is brown and the other, like I just thought, and I think that's part of where I come from culturally, because I know pe- I know that's what people ask and what people talk about. So I kind of wanted to avoid it. So yeah. I was thinking along these really like these lines of if I could just find someone who looks like me. Like I wasn't ever thinking that I would keep it a secret that they were donor conceived, but just from the outside, it would look a lot more like we were just a regular family. And so I found this clinic in, in Cyprus and the minute her bio hit me, like I knew it was her. I really? Just, I just knew because I'm very much a person who lives from gratitude and hope and a belief that things will be better and will get better. And she had this little tattoo and it said, there's always hope. But I was a bit like, this is really crazy. And everything in her bio spoke to my heart, like like it just spoke to me. And I went back and I, I, I was literally like, oh, I have to, she, it has to be her, it has to be her. And so we sort of agreed and we went on to sort of the next steps of, of what we needed to do. So she began her um, sort of her, all her screening and then she began her IVF medication. And then the clinic said, you know, your husband will need to come over on this date because that's the day that the eggs will be collected and need to be fertilised. And I was like, my husband's not coming on his own. Like, this is a family affair. Like, I have to come with him and I have to take my daughter with him because I want this lady to know what what she's doing for us. And so she was like, okay, but you only get five or ten minutes with your donor. That's all you get. And I was a bit like, okay, whatever I get, I'm coming. I'm coming all that way because I want to meet her. Yeah. So we met up and we just sat and we sat and we talked and we talked and it was hours and hours that we sat poolside and she told us about her life and I told her about my life and we cried together and we just, like I just knew it was perfect at that point in time and I just knew that that this was going to end well. Like I just had a feeling that mm. this this is the lady who's going to complete my family. I don't know, something was pulling us together and then we came home and I said to Ina, we've got this many embryos on ice and, you know, whenever you're ready. And Ina and I were talking dates and stuff. And it was July, August time. And then I went on a retreat. Um, I, went, I went on a, a retreat and I was in these mountains and every day I was meditating. And, you know, in my meditation, they were like, manifest what you want, manifest anything you want in this life, just manifest it. So I would just sit on this mountain and I was just every day imagining a pregnant woman and like me and Amala and Sati. And I literally, I would like tears would be streaming down my face, sunrise, sunset. The only thing I ever asked for in my meditation was a family. That was it. And I'd had my phone off for the whole few seven days that we were there. And then on the last day, I turned my phone on to get my flight details. And the first thing I saw was a WhatsApp from Ina And she just said, I can't pick up the phone and tell you this because I don't know how to, but I'm going to have to unmatch with you, um, you know, for X, Y and Z, whatever her personal reasons were, I'm not going to be able to carry your baby. And I was just heartbroken because I'd been so happy when we'd created our embryos and I'd gone to this mountain thinking that, you know, this is it. Well, you think you know where you're at. You think you found the last piece of the puzzle, yeah. Absolutely. And I thought that we had everything planned. And then it just reminded me of how vulnerable you are, like, and how out of control everything is in when you are like an intended mother, because you can put all the pieces together. 
But if any one of those pieces decide they want to step away, you have no control. And it was a really complex time because I didn't want to be annoyed or angry at Ina because she'd given me a mala. But equally, I was frustrated at the situation and frustrated at my own inability to make my dreams come true because I was so dependent on other people. So, you know, I came home. Then I was here and it was 2019. And... I was, what was I, 40, and I thought, oh, it's going to take me another two years, I'll be 42, by the time the baby arrives, I could be 40, like, do I still want to do it, like, you know, have we just spent all this money creating these embryos for no reason, and so many questions, and I was really lucky, because we'd launched the podcast, and I'd always kept in contact with the surrogacy community, like, I had a lot of people who were there to catch me when I fell then, like, a lot of my friends in the surrogacy community were like, you'll be all right, Queenie, you'll be all right, and then... A friend of mine who's a surrogate said to me, I want to introduce you to a girl who has done a number of surrogacy journeys before and she might do another one and I think you should meet her. Just just let's see if you get on with each other. So she introduced me and that was Laura. <laughs> and um, she introduced me, I think it was around about September, October time, just before we went to India. Yeah. And at that time, I had then got to... Just before we left for the Himalayas, I had been talking to two or three surrogates who seemed to really want to connect and I know what this surrogacy world's like and I knew that I was going to be like away from the internet and away from being able to talk to them and I was just like if I go now and these people start talking to someone else like I lose all of that work I've put in you know like someone could just come and match with these surrogates because we were away, you know, for whatever, two weeks. And then I actually was on holiday for 10 days. So I was out of the country yeah. for nearly three and a half weeks. And I just thought it could go really wrong. And actually, that is what happened with Laura. So when I came back, she said, oh, I've been talking to another couple. And I, you know, I really don't want you to get annoyed, but I'm meeting them. And I think I'm going to match with them. There was another lady and she did the same. She came back to me and she said, oh, in the time you were in India, I went and spoke to my old IPs and actually they want to go again, so I feel obliged to give them a chance with their last embryo. And I was like, I just had a feeling. And that period when we were in India, I thought that was hanging over my head that, you know, I wasn't matched again. It was my six-year chemo anniversary out there. It was Diwali out there. And, you know, I wasn't with my family and I was longing for this other family. And it was just so intense you know and so I came back to this news that you know the the people that I were talking to were no longer sort of really viable so like matches and I had to go back out into the pages and Laura sort of said I hope you're not annoyed with me and I just said look Laura like you don't owe me anything and you know you're a friend of a friend and what is meant to be will always will always happen like I believe that and so if you're meant to match with these other guys then this was always meant to happen so she was like, oh, you know, she was like, you're so kind. And I was like, no, you know, it's just how I live my life. And then she actually messaged me back like a week later. And she goes, yeah, that match isn't happening. Do you mind if do you want to keep talking? And I was like, yeah, like, of course. And she was like, you know what you were saying about things are meant to happen for a reason. Like, I believe I was meant to go away to then come back because it was a real test of your personality. Right. And I was like, I, ho- I hope I passed. <laughs> <laughs> So you decided to transfer two embryos, knowing that you could possibly have twins. Have twins, yes. So I spoke to the doctor at the time and he said to me, if you transfer one embryo, 
there's a 60% chance you'll have a singleton successful pregnancy, but a 40% chance of no pregnancy. If you transfer two, there's an 80% chance that you will get a healthy single pregnancy and a 20% chance that you'll have twins. <laughs> so I like, yeah. <laughs> the other one didn't come into question, right? So I basically rang up Sati and I said, look, this is what he's saying. And he, we, we'd said, you know, we would be happy for if it was two embryos and Laura was happy to carry twins. So we said, you know, if we put two healthy embryos and she, they both take and we have non-identical twins, that is a dream come true. We will just roll with that. And so we transferred the two embryos in, we came home. And by the way, I went to Cyprus. We didn't tell anyone. We didn't tell anyone that we were thinking of treatment again. We didn't tell anyone we were going to Cyprus. So I work part-time. So on my four days that I wasn't working, I flew off to Cyprus to do this transfer. I came back, just went back to work like like normal. So I was at my mum's house just making a cup of tea. And then my phone pings and it's Laura. And I thought, oh, you know, she goes, I'm just going to send you through a holiday, holiday pic. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll carry on with my mum's stuff, sat down, went through these pictures. And then the last picture was a positive pregnancy test. I was like, what is it with these people? Like, seriously? Did you wonder at that point, is it one or two? Did that even enter your head? No, just forgot about that no, one. No, I just thought it would... No, I didn't even think about it. just figured it would be one. Like, I just didn't for a second. That's 20%. As if 20% would be pulling through there. Doesn't happen, does it? But we should know, knowing my track record... <laughs> That the odds are never really in our favour. But anyway, so we, we just carried on. And then um, I got a call from Laura a couple of weeks later. And she, well, Sati picked up and Laura was crying. And um, we were like, oh, God, what's happened? What's happened? You know, has she had a bleed? Or And she called, she called me. She said, I'm in an ambulance. They think it might be an ectopic. I'm oh. in hospital. I'm on my way to hospital. And I said, like, do you want me to come to Northampton? Like, do you want me to come up there right now? And she was like, no. And and by now we were hearing mumblings of COVID and stuff. She goes, you stay, you know, you, you just stay there. I'll tell you what's going yeah. on. And um, so they said she came back and she said, you know, they're, they're concerned, but it's too early to tell. So I have to go back for another scan in, in one and a half weeks or something like that when it was closer to sort of five and a half to six weeks and we might have seen a heartbeat. So... She, I knew the day she was going back for that and Satya and I were just like, you know, biting our fingernails on what would come out of this scan. And then sort of, sort of I had my phone by my side all day and then she rang me sort of in the afternoon of the day of her scan and she said, are you sitting down? And I thought, oh, God, what is she going to do? What is she going to tell me? And she goes, and don't swear. And I was like, OK. I said, well, what's happened? What's happened? And she goes, you're having triplets. Like, Obviously, I swear. I swore. <laughs> And she was like, I told you not to swear. And I was a bit like, what? What? Gosh. And obviously I sit here now, like, absolutely grateful and in love with my three babies. But at the time, I was a bit like, holy moly, like, can I deal with this? Like, you know, as it is, I live with chronic fatigue and I live with whatever health conditions. Like, can I raise three babies? And in our agreement, we'd said, you know, if it's twins, that's fine. But in, if it's triplets, we potentially would look to reduce, like, in terms of like practically what we thought we would want to do, we didn't think we could raise three kids. Mm. But the minute she said it, like I was a bit like, well, I wouldn't ever say that one was able to live and the other, like I wouldn't, who am I to choose? Like if they're there, they're there. Yeah. Like she was a bit like, oh, thank God. Like, you know, I was so scared that you were going to ask me to reduce. So we agreed that we'd keep all three babies and we said to each other, we knew it was a high risk pregnancy. And if mother nature decided that, that they wouldn't all three make it, then that was not in our control. Um, Laura 
the specialist that she was seeing was kept telling her to reduce so she decided that she would change doctors because she was like I'm not going to reduce this pregnancy so I need a supportive team so she then found a team who were really good who were scanning her every two weeks to make sure that her and the babies were okay we just before we went into a full-on lockdown um, and Laura had told us that there was triplets we booked a private scan Satya and I went up we left Amala at home and and went and saw the triplets inside Laura's tummy together and that was the only time we actually were all together in a room what was that like what was it like knowing because you then had the two pregnancies to compare not being able to be there did you find ways new ways of being involved with it all yes and no I think it was it was incredibly difficult and you know there was no real way of sort of substituting being there in person so we just kept in touch over the phone but I think the fact that we had Amala was a distraction so I didn't realize how much I was missing out on until it got really close to the point so we got to the 12-week scan and that was I think the first time I really felt like I'd missed out on a lot because the rules were one thing but the other thing was that I was shielding yeah so I couldn't go and I was afraid to go um so by the time 20 weeks came like Satya and I had a real like conversation I was like if I don't go now I could potentially never get to see like another scan also like if any of the babies didn't make it beyond 20 weeks like I didn't want to never have seen them yeah yeah anyway so we went to the 20 week scan and that was really difficult because I went in and I just expected to be like, oh, like, oh, my God, this, this is amazing and blah, blah, blah. And, and just see the positives in it. But and I did. I did. I mean, it was incredible seeing the boys. And obviously, we didn't know there were boys at the time. But just sort of seeing all of their anatomy and, you know, these three lives inside this tummy. It was it was incredible. Um, but what I didn't prepare myself for was that because Laura had been having her scans every fortnight, she knew everything about the babies and she knew so much about them that I just felt, again, that sort of worthlessness that I felt when Ina was giving birth. I just felt it just crept back in and I just was like, she knows everything about my babies and I know nothing. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be able to tell you what part of that body that they're scanning right now. Like, I wouldn't have a clue. Um, yeah, it was hard. The 20-week scan was, was quite difficult. And then we booked in a private scan shortly after that so Sati could go in and right. see um, the babies. So he went in. Um, and we got a video and we brought it back home. And then that was the last time we saw Laura pregnant, basically. Um, it was lovely. We had, you know, we had a bit of a walk together. We got some lovely photos together. Amala was there. And, you know, by this time, Amala's like, Lawla, Lawla, my baby's in Lawla's tummy. And it was just the cutest thing ever. Um, and that was a really special day. And then we came home and kind of just went about our daily lives, really. And, and it was all sort of ticking along nicely. And we kind of... We knew that we wouldn't reach full term, but we were thinking if we could get to sort of 34-ish weeks, that sort of, Laura was targeting that, and I was like, yeah, that that, that sounds great to me. (laughs) Like, that would be a good time. That's sort of what we were working towards. And then we get this call um, one Saturday morning, or early hours of a Saturday, or early hours of Sunday morning, which was absolutely bonkers, because we'd been on a staycation, like, the week before, and then I'd come home (laughs) the Friday before, Amala had been a bit of a pickle and sort of helped herself to some of the the contents of my bag in which I had some of my medication. So I had an absolute heart attack that she'd taken one of Gosh. my tablets. So we ran her to A&E. So we were, we were with her in A&E until sort of 4am on the Saturday morning before and then went to bed on Saturday night thinking we're going to get a really good night's sleep and got a call from Laura at 3am and she was just like, 
Karina, Karina, the babies are coming. And I was a bit like, <gasps> oh. oh my God, like, could not believe it because we were 30 weeks. Yeah. Um, and I like, I just sort of whacked Satya and I was like, the babies are coming. <gasps> just, just, just couldn't get up the M1 fast enough, basically. Did you know what the situation was going to be when you got there this time? Did you know if you were allowed in the hospital because of everything going on? Yeah. You were, what? So Yeah, so we'd had a birth plan and it was quite clear on the birth plan that Laura had her sister as a birth partner and then myself as someone else who would be going into the room. So they'd agreed that I would be allowed in regardless. Mm -hmm. And then that if they managed to get a larger room for that that is built for multiples, then Sati would be allowed in right. as well. So we'd gone there with this knowing that one of us could get in to be with Laura. So we did that. So we got in, we, you know, we got to the hospital, went into the delivery suite, and I sort of said, Oh, um, our surrogate's coming, she has gone into labour. She's expecting triplets, she's our surrogate, she's Laura, I'm Krina, blah blah blah. I explained everything. And she just said, so This woman behind the counter just looked at me, she goes, So who are you? And I said, I'm their mum. And she was just like, oh, right, okay. And then she goes to Sati, so who are you? He goes, I'm their dad. And he, she was just being really awkward. Yeah. And she was like, have you have you been COVID tested? And I was like, well, no, because she's just gone into labour. And she was like, well, you can't go anywhere then. And I was like, but my birth plan says I can. And she said, no, you can't. And obviously I didn't know what the rules were, so we didn't want to upset anyone. Yeah. And then I just said to her, okay, fine, I've arranged for... Um, we were planning on harvesting stem cells for the for the babies. Um, so I said, I've arranged for a phlebotomist to come and harvest the stem cells from the umbilical cord, the placenta, wherever they need to come from. Um, so regardless of whether you let me in, please, can you let that be done? Because that's crucial that it's done at the right time. And she just looked at me and she goes like, what? And I said, the, the, the placenta is not available. And I was a bit like, why would the placenta not be available? And I was like, well, if the placenta, wherever, it could, in placenta or umbilical cord, wherever, the, the phlebotomist just needs to get them. And she goes, no, the placenta's been sent away. And I looked at her and I was like, then I went, why is the placenta not with Laura? And then I looked at her and I was like, are you telling me the babies are here? And then she looked at me, she goes, oh, did you not know? Oh. And I was like, oh, my. Yeah. So that's how we found out that the babies were born. And then I basically cried a lot yeah. in the foyer. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. And then I just turned around and I just said, where are they? And she just said, I can't tell you anything now. She said, I didn't know you didn't know they were born. And I was like, I'm their mum. And she was like, I can't tell you anything. So I said, are all three of the babies here? Are they safe? And she was just like... I can't tell you that. And I was then we were just like, oh, my God, what if one of them hasn't made, like, wh what? So she walked away and then this other nurse came up and just said, I just want to let you know that the three babies are fine and they're now on the neonatal intensive care unit, but they're fine. Yeah. Um. So then she, the lady came back and she said, anyway, you're not allowed to come in. Um. We'd had our, call, you know, Laura called us close to four o'clock. We got to the hospital by six o'clock. It was now like 7.38. Right. I was like, I just want to just see the babies. She said, oh, we're a bit busy. Could you come back at 11 to get COVID tested? Oh, and what? I looked... What? This is so annoying. And I'm not even there. I know, I know. We did the tests. We got in the car and we just drove straight back home again because we were like, well, what, what are we going to do here? We might as well go home and be with Amala. So we just drove another two hours back down the M1. So, you know, hung out with Amala for a bit yeah. and just, you know, spent time with her. And then Laura was 
it, the, the worst thing was Laura was on her own this whole time. Like, her birth partner wasn't there. I wasn't there. She'd given birth by an emergency C-section to three beautiful babies, but she had no one holding her hand. Yeah. And we were just calling each other and WhatsApping each other, and I said, look, as soon as they let me in, I'm going to be there. So it was about two o'clock and she said look just just come up I think your results are in so we got in the car came back up back up the M1 and then they let us in our results came back negative obviously and then we walked into the delivery suite and uh, decided obviously the first person we'd see was Laura before we went to the babies so we went in and you know she was just telling us what happened and you know all of the events that happened before the babies arrived and then at this point, we didn't even know the sex. <laughs> no one would tell us. Right. And then we got to a point where I was like, I just I just want Laura to tell me now because if I didn't find out immediately, I'll just wait for her to tell me. So we went in and I just said to Laura, I've been waiting for ages, just tell me, just tell me, you know, what have we got? Because you want to know now or do you want to see them up there? And I was like, no, you tell me. And then she just goes, you've got three baby boys. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh. I, I, we, none of us saw that coming. I think Satie and I believed that we'd have two boys and a girl. Laura thought it was going to be two girls and a boy. We never thought they'd all be the same. And it was just having that moment where she could share that with us yeah. was magical. I've got it recorded, and every time me and her watch it, we just end up with <laughs> Just so beautiful. And then we slowly made our way up to the intensive care unit, and and we walked in, and then Satie and I automatically split across the room. Like, <laughs> he went to one baby, I went to the other one. Like, it, the nurses were with the third baby anyway. And I was just like, oh, my, these are my children. These are my miracle, miracle babies. And you just will them at that point in time to make it through. And I've never seen a baby as tiny as my babies were. Um, How tiny were they? They were around three pounds each. So just sort of a pound, like slightly, slightly over and slightly under. So they were so small and they were just all curled up in their incubators. And, you know, we, we made our way around to each one of them. And it was... Like, it took us so long to get into that intensive care unit. We'd been outside for so long, like, just wishing to get through. And then when we got through, the emotion and the love and the relief that that they had made it to this point. Did all three of them come home at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, we we actually um, requested that. So they stayed in Northampton for four weeks and then they were well enough to transfer down to our local hospital so we moved back home um, when they were four or five weeks old and then yeah they were all discharged together after eight long long weeks in NICU um, and it was it's just wonderful to have them home and what was that like that first oh. time having all of your family there because I always think of the first time of having a newborn at home that first time coming home and then just being like that what now but yeah even though, you know, you had a Marla, suddenly you've got newborn triplets. It must have been that that feeling all over again, but, m- like, multiplied. <laughs> yeah. We kind of gone... We went into autopilot, I think, a little bit, that, you know, we've just got to get them home, we've got to figure out how we're going to fit them in the car and transport them <laughs> home and get all of that stuff. So we went into that sort of practical, logistical nightmare and then arrived on our driveway and started to unbuckle them. And, like, I literally said to Sati, like, this is this is it this is us like we like the tv show now and yeah we we walked in the door and um my sister-in-law and my mother-in-law had been looking after Amala so they'd had some balloons put up and it was just perfect and walked in put them down and then literally the tears just just oh. out of nowhere you know the three of them were put on the floor and I looked at them and just cried and cried and Sati came and he held me and together we cried and we were just 
we've known so much heartache in the last five or six years. We've known like a loss of so many things and we've sort of clutched onto this dream of having a family and we've never ever given up on that never let anyone tell us that it's not possible and then we did it like we we created this incredible family of six (laughs) like that you know I, I, I would have been happy with two kids <laughs> well, what wasn't what was Amala like when she met her brothers so she was really shy initially she Aww. was very shy and then she was a little bit afraid I think because we kept saying oh careful careful but after that she's just been the most doting big sister ever yeah. ever so she you know she'll she, every she's got her favorite I'm not gonna lie so it, it, <laughs> Anytime, anytime something happens to an iron, she's like, Mummy, don't forget an iron. An iron needs his milk first. And I'm like, he's okay. Arvan's crying. She's like, no, go and look after him. And every morning she'll go to an iron and give him a kiss first and then she'll give her other brother a kiss. Um, But she's taken to it like a dream. And, you know, we've obviously, we've been locked down. So she's not at nursery. She's been with them 24-7 since they've been born. And actually, you know, bringing her home to them... it was really interesting because she knew they were alive because we'd moved up to Northampton and we kept saying we'd gone to see your brothers and we'd bought her presents from her brothers, but she'd never met her brothers because yeah. she wasn't allowed into the hospital. And then when they did arrive, I think she was a bit like, these are the brothers that they keep going to see <sighs> in hospital. The, these are the people, like these are the babies. So she kind of sort of took a little while to put all the pieces together. But once they were together, like, you know, she's just the best big sister ever. Um, and I'm sure everyone says that mm. about their kids, but... You're just filled with such pride, you know, as as a mum to know that you've raised such a beautiful human being who who dotes on her siblings so much. Yeah. And I hope they, you know, I, I genuinely hope they keep that bond for life and nothing or, or no one or anything comes in between them because it's just gorgeous to see. It's you know, it's just beautiful. It must feel so. Um, I'm going to say strange, but I don't think that's the right word. To look back and. To see you being given that cancer diagnosis and looking at what your future might look like, thinking about, you know, if you're even going to be here, what the effects are going to be, and then looking at you now and having this family of six, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, is it beyond what you could have ever dreamed of? Way beyond, way beyond. And, it, you know, although it seems like a lifetime ago that I received my diagnosis, sometimes it feels like yesterday. Yeah. Like it just takes one thing to trigger you straight back to being on that chemo ward or, you know, and I don't, I don't forget it for one second. I don't take any of where I'm at for granted. You know, I think for me, the hardest time actually was, was when I had heart failure, which, you know, it happened secondary to chemo. But at that point, we would we were literally told that I wouldn't survive. We, you know, we were told to call our family over to say their goodbyes to us. And I think at that point, I genuinely thought I'd never have children. I just thought I, th- I thought life was over. So more than cancer, that's where I go back to when yeah. I realise how far we've come. Um, and I just think it was a really difficult journey, but I I'm still grateful for it because if any one of those scenarios played out differently, I wouldn't be here. And this is where I was always meant to be. Yeah. This, you know, this is what my purpose is. And and that's why I am so passionate about sharing it. Because there's nothing, 
extraordinary about my story, if that makes sense. Like, like thousands of women are diagnosed with stage three breast cancer, um, and and more and more in the you know the younger age bracket, and and loads of women face infertility. But actually, there are ways to still make your dreams come true. You just have to keep going, and and I know that's. I mean, if someone told me that when I was in the midst of my darkest days, I'd, I'd pretty much tell them to do one. Yeah. But having a story that you could go to when you're ready to listen to yeah. it, when you're ready to find hope and let hope really creep in and give you ideas on how you could create a dream, that's why I'm like, that's why I do it, you know. And and a lot of people say to me like, have you found that after you had cancer, with you know, do people shun you in your community or? Do people look differently upon you because of the way your children were born in your community? Or does anyone, like, say anything about your children being donor-conceived? And there was probably a time where I was really worried about my community yeah. and the judgment I would receive for the way I've chosen to live my life. But actually, no one has ever said anything negative to me. And I think it's all just... We're afraid. Like, we're afraid that someone might say something or might do something. But actually... Like, people just want to hear good yeah, stuff. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? They don't. They don't care that my triplets egg came from someone else. They just care that I'm a mum to yeah. triplets. Like, and yeah, I think there are parts of our society that talk that put negative scenarios around all of you know surrogacy or donation or cancer or that. But I don't want to ever focus too much on that. I'd rather just focus on actually the people who've embraced it and get more and more people to embrace it and get yeah. more and more people to talk positively because negativity just breeds negativity yep. so if all you do is share the positive slowly we'll change that perception of negativity into positivity and and create more hope and and just build more families yeah for some reason i just feel like that's, that's what i need to do now just help people like you know find a way through you know breast cancer and yeah. find a way through all that pain to know that that there are real stories of hope out there that are really lovely and heartwarming and and real because like I said there's nothing extraordinary about me I'm just a regular girl who chased a dream mm. and made it you know and made it come true if you could write a letter on motherhood who would it be to <laughs> and what would it say I knew you were going to ask this. Come on, you've done your research. But it's at the end of every podcast, every episode. This is true. This is true. This is true. I listen to a lot, but I, 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 I'm going to write two because I, I have written one which I've forgotten to post up to the children, so you can read that another time. But I, you know, I would probably write to myself if I was to write a second letter, and it would be all of what I've just said that you know that there will be times of darkness there will be times where you lose yourself and there will be times where you question what what life is going to be but never ever lose sight of your dream and never ever lose sight of gratitude and hope because that's what will carry you ultimately to your destination thank you we finish each episode with you finishing three sentences being a mum means more than pregnancy and dna <laughs> Since having children, I? I do not get to go to the toilet in peace. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> and I'm happy when? I'm happy when I'm at to take that concert. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> 
thank you so much for coming on and sharing. Thank oh, you. Thank you, G. Love you loads. And you. Thank you. I knew we were going to talk for absolutely ages. <laughs>